Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to have each of you here. Uh, we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John, and we are continuing here in the second half where he shifts focus in the Gospel from Jesus bearing witness to the world to Jesus uh, preparing and talking to his disciples about the life ahead. So this idea that dominates in the second half of abiding in him and he in us uh, continues in our, our passage today. I've recently read the book of Job. Have any of you read the book of Job? It's a fun read, isn't it? Um, it's the tale of a man who loves God, who thinks he understands God, he understands himself, he has figured out kind of how life is supposed to work, and suddenly somebody yanks the carpet out from under him. Suddenly, everything he thought he knew is called into question by traumatic circumstances. He loses his family, his wealth, his health. He wrestles with God, who seems distant and incomprehensible. Maybe you, as you pursue a life of faith in Jesus, have encountered some moments like the ones Joseph, uh, Job faced. Moments where you come face to face with the limitations of your own understanding your failure to adequately grasp truth, all this within the context of a walk of faith. I hope I'm not depressing you. The good news is that Jesus knew that it was going to be this way for us, and he tells us where we can find courage to face this difficult journey. So I've titled the message today, Courage for the Difficult Journey. And we are in John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 33. Let's begin in verse 16. A little while, and you no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... Therefore, they were saying, what is this that he says this little while? We don't know what he is saying. I wonder if you ever identify with the disciples in that sentiment. I don't get it. Uh, Jesus has been explaining and preparing uh, the disciples for what's about to happen. And the next three days are going to be the most intense days of their life thus far. And uh, Jesus knows how difficult this is going to be. So he's trying to prepare them for what is coming. And he tells them very simply that in just a little bit, I'm going to be removed from your presence. In fact, it'll be less than 24 hours from now that Jesus is already set in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and his disciples will have no access to him. In fact, these conversations he's having now uh, and, and the ones that will happen in the garden in a few hours are going to be the final words they share with Jesus except for that one exchange with John from the cross where he tells him to take care of his mother. They're going to have Jesus taken from them and then just a little bit longer... This happens Friday. He's buried before sundown on Friday. When they show up at the tomb Sunday morning, he's already gone. Before dawn, he's out. 
So in just a little bit longer, he's going to rise and he will begin appearing to the disciples and uh, Mary Magdalene and uh, Peter and all the, uh, the, the ten and uh, eventually Thomas and a whole bunch of disciples, even 400 at one point uh, in, in one moment. Uh, they're going to see him again. And Jesus is telling them ahead of time so that as things begin to unfold, they will be confirmed in the fact that Jesus knew perfectly well everything that was going on, that none of this was some kind of derailing of God's plan, some kind of catastrophe where everything just fell apart. Jesus knew all along and he's trying to prepare them for what's coming. But right then, as Jesus is saying these things to them, it makes no sense to them. And they're talking to one another. What, what does it mean a little while I'm gone? A little while you're going to see me? What's this about? I'm going back to the Father, which was in the passage we looked at last week. So they're talking to one another. And they're like, what, what's this? what do you mean little while? What, are we talking God kind of little while, like several hundred years? Or what, what, what is this? And uh, they just admit, we, we don't know what he's talking about. wonder how many times... You have experienced that in your walk with Jesus, where he's saying stuff to you, but you still, it's just not clicking. You, you're not getting it. It, it doesn't seem to, to, to correspond with, with what you're facing, or it seems obscure and cryptic and like a riddle, and you, have a, you struggle to make sense of what God is trying to tell, to, tell you or say to you. These words of Jesus seemed cryptic and obscure. They would soon come alive for the disciples as the things he was telling them played out. How have you experienced the words of Jesus coming to life as you live through trauma in your own life? Let's keep reading verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him and he said to them, Are you asking one another about this that I said? A little while and you no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be grieved, but your grief will become joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has grief because her hour has come. But when she brings forth a child, she no longer remembers the tribulation because of the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes away your joy from you. So they're debating. I don't understand what he's saying. It, it doesn't make sense. And, and we need to remember this about Jesus. He always tells us exactly what we need to know, when we need to know it. Because those words he needed to be spoken before the cross. So that when it all starts to play out, that would be absolute confirmation in the hearts of the disciples. Once it's resolved that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That God wasn't scrambling trying to make something good out of a disaster, but that this was exactly what he had planned all along. By saying these words ahead of time, Jesus laid the foundation they would need later on. Now, it doesn't play out. Their comprehension doesn't happen until things play out. 
But Jesus told them exactly what they needed to know when they needed to know it. And Jesus knows they want to ask him about this. What are you talking about? This little bit, I'm gone. Little bit, you see me again. And uh, he fleshes it out a little bit more, even though he knows that they're still not getting it. But these words will, will be engraved in their minds. As things start to play out, there will be aha moments over the next three days. He says, well, the first bit, the little bit and you won't see me, uh, I'm talking about my death. And he's been telling them on this journey to Jerusalem, this final trip back to Jerusalem from, from Galilee in the north, three times he's already told the disciples in plain uh, Aramaic or, or whatever uh, he was speaking to them, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. He's, he told them three times. Now he's referring to that again. And he says, let me tell you the truth, truly, truly, with all certainty, this is an important truth. You are going to be torn up about this. My death is going to hit you hard. You will weep. You will lament. You will be grieved. And what's going to make it even worse is that the world around you is going to be throwing a party. All the powers that be that have been so upset with Jesus for challenging them, for confronting them about their hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus has been pointing out how the experts, the gatekeepers of understanding the scriptures, how they have misled the people. And he's shown them in scripture how you take the word of God and you invalidate it with your traditions. You are false teachers. And he has exposed the hypocrisy of their behavior. How they are trying to present this image of holiness before others. But they're really not concerned at all with God. And he lets them know that God sees and knows and is not deceived. So all the powers that be, all the religious, even political leadership in Jerusalem, they combined forces to get rid of Jesus. So when Jesus is crucified, everyone, even the Romans, are going to breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, this thorn in our side has been taken out. This guy who's currying the favor and admiration of people we're trying to get to uh, worship us, as the greatest. So the, the world is happy when Jesus is killed. The disciples, it's going to be like the bottom fell out of their world. As Jesus says, yeah, that's going to be, that's the first little bit I'm talking about. That's the devastating little bit. But, he says, you will be grieved, but your grief will become joy. That's the second little bit. You see, Friday night is going to be the darkest night of their life. But Sunday morning is going to be the most glorious morning of their lives. So glorious that it will completely overshadow and obliterate the darkness of the preceding days. He gives an example. When a woman's giving birth... 
She has grief because her hour has come. Those of you who have done this, who have had a child and given birth to a child, know uh, that uh, it really doesn't matter how prepared you think you are. When the baby says, I'm coming, he's coming. When the hour arrives, it's going to happen whether you want it to or not. And you are going to face the tribulation and trial of that moment. The intense uh, physical uh, stress and ordeal of giving birth. And today, thanks to medicine, we have things that alleviate pain and things that uh, help guarantee the, the health and safety of both mother and child. Today, childbearing is not nearly as dangerous as it used to be. But in Jesus' day, uh, death during childbirth was, was one of the big causes of women dying. Uh, it was one of the things that brought down life expectancy for women in antiquity. So when Jesus says she's facing grief and tribulation, he's not, he's not exaggerating. This is a life-threatening moment for a woman. And all the grief and pain in the days before epidurals, all of that, all of a sudden disappears the moment that baby is placed in the mother's arms. All of a sudden, the weight of joy is so great that it obliterates the pain. She uh, becomes a participant in one of the most miraculous things we as human beings are granted to experience. That we become vehicles through which God brings another being created in his image and likeness into this world. What a wonder. What a marvel. And the joy of that accomplishment makes all the grief disappear. It overshadows it completely. Jesus says that's, that's what you're going to experience over the next three days. You have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And here's the difference between the, the grief and the joy. That grief is going to be shattered by the joy. But the joy that is coming is a joy that nobody takes away from you. The, the, the grief will be temporary. The joy will be permanent. I want you to ponder a moment what Jesus is talking about here when he's saying, uh, using this illustration of birth as in uh, grief or pain as in childbearing. What is it going to be like for the disciples over the next few days? You know, in this evening, Peter is going to be adamant to Jesus. I don't care what everybody else, all these other bozos might tuck tail and run, but I will die with you, Jesus. I will not fail you. And Jesus is insisting, Peter, you are going to fail. You're going to deny three times that you even know me. And Peter says, that's impossible. I would never do that. Within hours... He's going to do exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do. The third denial, he's going to be calling down curses on himself if he's lying to try to convince the people he doesn't know Jesus. And right at that moment, they're going to be bringing Jesus across the courtyard and he's going to lock eyes on Peter. 
I want you to put yourself in his shoes. What do you think Friday night was like for Peter? After all, he promised, and he was so sure. He finds out that he's a coward and that he cares more about his own skin than the Messiah. He thought he was willing to die. He wasn't. The shame. Can you imagine the shame he felt Saturday? Having witnessed Jesus not just being spit on and beaten and mocked, but stripped naked and spread eagle on a beam of wood and hung out there publicly by the roadside as a spectacle of humiliation and defeat and left there to bleed and die. And he was too big a coward to stand by him. All the disciples should have been on crosses with him. They all ran away. I can't imagine what Saturday was like for Peter. I do know that Sunday, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus met one-on-one -on -one with Peter privately. Nowhere in the Bible are we told what happened. Peter never saw fit, apparently, to share about that. I suspect that in that one-on-one -on -one meeting with Peter in particular, Jesus was letting him know that he had not rejected him because of his failure. It's a different Peter after this. It's a much more humble Peter after this. But Jesus had not rejected him. And Jesus says, a joy that obliterates the agony that preceded it. He's talking about Peter. Think about Mary Magdalene. We're told in Luke that Jesus had delivered her from seven demons. When Jesus died on the cross, I can bet what was going through her mind. Is it going to go back to the way it was? Jesus isn't here to scare away the evil forces, and I don't have the strength to do it. Am I going to be right back where I was? Am I going to be a plaything in the hands of evil forces once again? She thought she was free, but then Jesus died. Add to that the shame that she had, didn't have the courage to stand with him. We find her Sunday morning bawling her eyes out because the one thing she thought she could do, at least honor his body and death, when she shows up at the tomb, somebody took the body. And she has no idea where he is. She is bawling her eyes out to the point that today we talk about people who cry a lot as uh, being like Mary Magdalene. That's where the term maudlin comes from. Somebody who cries a lot. And the moment when Jesus tells her there in the garden, calls her by name, Mary. And she realizes who he is and grabs hold of him so tight, Jesus has to say, hey, you got to let go of me. The joy obliterated the pain. Think of Thomas. 
We don't know a whole lot of details about Thomas. We do know one thing. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas happens to not be with them. And when the other disciples tell him, overjoyed, we have seen the Lord, Thomas says, yeah, right, that's not going to work again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I fell for all of that once. I'm not going to do it again. You let me put my fingers in the nail holes and then maybe I'll talk about believing. Thomas was absolutely shattered by what happened with Jesus. He thought, he, he seems to have been a man of certainty. And when he committed to Jesus, and he talks about even being willing to die with him, obviously he didn't, but uh, he, he was, thought he was all in. And when Jesus dies on the cross, it's like he's been duped. And he's been taken in by yet another charlatan that ended up dying, and that's the end of the story. There have been so many already. And Thomas is devastated. He feels like his faith in Jesus was a waste. Consider that moment when Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, do you need to put your hand here? Do it. What do you need? Believe. In fact, in John's gospel, that is the climax of the whole book. When Thomas comes before Jesus and says what the whole book of John is trying to get us to say, my Lord and my God, the joy obliterates the agony of feeling that he had completely messed up. The disciples were about to face the most devastating grief imaginable. As they failed completely and, they f and Jesus dies alone in public humiliation. Yet the joy Jesus brought them at his resurrection erased that grief. How have you seen Jesus bring joy to your life that stays while grief fades? Verse 23, and in that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. These things I have spoken to you in parable. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in parables. Rather, I will announce to you freely regarding the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father regarding you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Jesus talks about that second little bit, the day in which he rises from the dead in victory and encounters the disciples. In that day, when that moment arrives, you're not going to need to ask me anything. The way we've been doing things here, I'm the rabbi and you guys are falling around behind me and I'm trying to teach you and you guys aren't getting any of it. It's going to get a whole lot better. In fact, 
I've been kind of mediating the Father to you. I've been speaking to you the words of the Father. I have been doing the works of the Father in your presence. But what I'm about to accomplish is going to change things so that now you can directly talk to the Father. In my name, I'm going to make that possible. I am going to make it possible for you to enter into a personal relationship with God Almighty, God the Father. Until now, you haven't asked anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. Jesus is describing a relationship with God the Father that he is going to make possible. In that day, you will ask in my name, uh, and he's saying, I'm not saying I'm going to try to convince the Father to listen to what you're asking for. I don't have to, because the Father himself already loves you. Who sent Jesus into the world to save us? It was the Father. It isn't that Jesus said, man, my father's really mad with you. Uh, maybe I can do something to make things better. The initiative was from the father. The father sent the son into the world because he loves us. To the point that within a few hours when the son is going to be pleading with the father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The father is going to hold the line and say, no, there is no other way. And we must redeem creation and humankind. You have to go to the cross. It is the Father's love that pursued us in Christ. So it isn't that Jesus has to somehow convince the Father to love us. He already loves us. And what opens us up to this loving relationship with God Almighty? When we believe Him. When we love Jesus and believe that He is exactly what He said. That He is God come to redeem us from God. When we open ourselves up to that, then the floodgates are opened. And it's in that context that we ask in his name. And the Father responds. Now, I want to say this. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. So this initial joy that will explode into their hearts upon the resurrection is going to turn into a, an eternal joy that is worked out in the, moment, in the reality of a developing relationship with God the Father. And that joy will come to be filled to the top, will come to its completion and fullness as we delve into this relationship with the Father He is making possible. He talks here about asking in his name. You might wonder why we Christians so often end our prayers in the name of Jesus. It's not a magic formula. It's not the abracadabra of Christian prayers. You know, if you tag it onto the end, then the prayer works. If you don't, then God won't hear anything you said. That's not what we're doing. There's no magical phrase we say that guarantees that God hears us. The reason we pray in his name, first of all, is he said we should do it. And we don't do it to remind God of anything. We do it to remind ourselves how it is that this relationship is even happening at all. Sin was an impenetrable barrier between us and God. And Jesus shattered it. 
And because of Jesus, we can address the Father directly. We don't need some priest to mediate for us. We don't even need Jesus to uh, relay the message for us. The Father will receive us directly. We are brought into the very presence of God Almighty because of what God accomplished. So this idea of ask and you will receive, the, the, the worst possible way to interpret this is that Jesus is saying that now that I'm dying on the cross, God is going to become your personal genie. All you have to do is use the magic formula and your abracadabra is in the name of Jesus and then poof, whatever you wish for is going to be granted. You may have tried that and realized that's not how it works. What he's talking about is that we can talk to the Father and that the Father is actually receiving us and listening and the conversation is a genuine interaction between just you and me, little specks on this uh, spinning globe in the middle of the galaxy, little us are talking to God Almighty and He is actually listening and responding. In that relationship, our joy comes to its fullness. We are invited into a relationship with God as Father, made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. So I like to end my prayers with, in the name of Jesus. Not because I need to remind God of anything, but because I like to remember how it is that this even happens. And we should never lose the wonder every time we pray that God would even deign to listen to us. Who am I to address God Almighty? And He hears me because of what Jesus did. So I, I like to pray that way. It reminds me of something I want to remember. And I encourage you to do the same, not because it's a magic formula, but as a way of reminding yourself of how this all was made possible. He will reveal to us in this relationship. Uh, he will announce to us freely regarding the Father by His Holy Spirit. He says, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in parables. It seems like so many times the things Jesus has been saying to the disciples feel cryptic and uh, difficult to understand. And uh, there are always some layer of metaphor or something going on. And he says... Uh, your understanding is going to be much better through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I will announce to you freely regarding the Father. And I will share in you. Now consider how superior the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of our relationship with God is to what it would have been if Jesus were here talking to us. You might have thought that would be clearer. But it's one thing to hear somebody saying words it's another thing for God's soul to be interacting with your soul. There's a much deeper point of communication going on. And it's superior. Jesus said as much to his disciples. Jesus is giving us the dad we needed. It may be that you uh, have had a bad experience with an earthly father. 
May have you, maybe you had a great experience, I don't know. But if you happen to be in the camp of those who have had a negative experience with your earthly father, just understand when we talk about God as father, it's like talking about God loving you. Some people say they love you and do horrible things to you. That's not what we're talking about when we say God loves you. And when we say God wants to be father to you, we're not saying he's going to be abusive and self-centered. We're saying he's going to be the father everyone should have had. He's the perfect loving father. Because of Jesus, now we can ask God the Father directly, and he receives us, and he responds. We are able to have a genuine loving relationship with Almighty God. How have you discovered the joy of this relationship in your life? Let's keep reading verse 29. His disciples are saying, Look, now you speak clearly and you tell us no parable. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Now you believe? Look, an hour is coming and has already come in which you will be scattered each to his own and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have conquered the world. I love this. The disciples from utter confusion now seem to be on the opposite end of the spectrum. And they say, ah, now you're talking plainly. There are no parables, no metaphors, nothing hard to interpret here. We get it. We fully understand. And let me show you, Jesus, how well I understand this. You know everything. Nobody needs to question you about anything. You've already proven yourself. And we believe that you came from God. It's interesting that everything they're saying is, is true and good and correct. But Jesus seems to contradict what they just said in terms of their own self-evaluation in this. They say, we understand. And basically, Jesus says, you think you do, but you really don't. You're spouting the words back to me that I've been speaking to you, but you are very quickly going to demonstrate by your actions that you don't get it yet. An hour is coming. In fact, the hour is here. We're we're doing this now. You're each going to run off and leave me alone. I'm never alone. The Father is always with me. But every one of you is going to leave me and, and run away. I think about this and how often we Christians commit the same mistake of arrogance and assuming we understand everything perfectly And we say things like, well, it's as plain as day. And boy, the Bible says it right there. And we quote the three words from the verse that we've taken completely out of context. And that settles it. The Bible says it. That settles it. I've got it. And we go around with swagger and arrogance, assuming we can tell everybody everything they need to know about God and life and themselves because we got it. And I think the reminder Jesus provides the disciples here is a good reminder to us that very often that level of arrogance and confidence 
in our own understanding. Notice that that's not faith. That's not faith in God. That's faith in me. In that I'm smart and I've figured it out and I can tell everybody else everything because I've got it. That's not faith in Christ. That's not confidence come from a faith in Christ. That's confidence come from human pride and arrogance. And Jesus reminds the disciples, you, you think you've figured it all out, you've got it, oh, you understood, no need to ask any more questions, we've settled the matter. It's settled completely until two hours from now. And you're going to run like cockroaches. Here's the really weird thing. After Jesus basically saying, you think you got it, you don't have it, it, you don't understand, and you're about to demonstrate your lack of understanding by running away, here's what Jesus says next. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. What's peaceful about knowing we're about to fail miserably? What's peaceful about knowing what we think we knew we didn't? Well, the problem is never God's word and what he's saying to us. The problem is that we are small and limited and finite and the truths of God are so far beyond us that it takes us our whole lives to begin to scratch the surface of them. The minute we lose that humility, we set ourselves up for failure. So why peace in this? Well, Jesus wants his disciples to know, he wants Peter to know, that the reason he's telling them you're all about to fail is not to make them feel like worms, but to let them know, I know this, and I'm going to work with you anyway. I know all about your shameful acts. I know about your cowardice. I know that you thought you knew and didn't. I know all the arrogance and pride. I know all of that. I know you're going to fall flat on your face and I'm still with you. I'm still going to that cross to redeem you and make possible this complete joy that you're going to have as you dig into a relationship with God Almighty as Father. I have spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Our peace does not come from our understanding, from our grasp of things. It comes from Jesus' understanding. It comes from his grasp of things. In the world you will have tribulation. I want you to realize that Jesus said that there's no conditional aspect to that statement he didn't say you might he didn't say if you have tribulation in the world then no there's nothing in this sentence to give us anything but a clear indication that if we are following Christ we will face tribulation in this world that's a word by the way that John will use again in the next book he's going to write revelation and he will talk there using apocalyptic as, as the genre and the imagery of apocalyptic. He will talk about the Christians facing a great tribulation as they're at the end of the first century and beginning to face intense persecution under Domitian. And the message in Revelation is going to be, you know what, this persecution isn't going to let up. It's going to go on. And you need to be ready to die if you have to for, for this faith. 
In the world you will have tribulation. So when you face difficulties in this world, and that some of that difficulty may be your lack of understanding, or you realizing that the things you knew for sure you were absolutely wrong about, you had misunderstood what God was talking about, the problem is not God, it's you. When that happens, know that Jesus said you should expect it. This walk of faith is going to be hard. You are going to face tribulation. Things you never thought you were going to face are going to happen to you. But take courage. Don't be afraid. Don't live hesitantly. Live with courage. Face it head on. Why? Not because you've got it figured out. Not because you will develop the strength to face it. No, take courage because I have conquered the world. That's the other word that John is going to use a lot in Revelation. Everyone is, over and over in Revelation, Christians are told, be ready to die for your faith because the one who is in Christ is the one who conquers. The conquering one is the way he describes it in Revelation. Our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus has conquered the world. When Jesus died on the cross and defeated all the powers of sin and death in his own death, took them upon himself and rose victorious from the grave over sin and all the powers of evil, then we are told in Scripture, and he tells his disciples upon his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus rises from the dead, he becomes king of creation. He bought it with his blood, and it now rightfully belongs to him, and sin has lost its claim over creation. Our confidence comes from that fact. Sin is defeated. The world and creation, the cosmos itself, in open rebellion against its creator, that rebellion has failed. And the victory is won. The conquest has happened. And the only reason there is still sin in the world is that Jesus, God, has to tolerate its presence while he leaves the door open for the full number of those who are going to believe and be rescued to come in. But the minute the last one is in, it's over. Sin will be purged from creation. We will have new heavens and new earth. We ourselves will be transformed into eternal glory to share eternity with him. That is the courage that sustains our lives. Not our understanding, not our strength, not the fact that we figured it all out. Not the fact that we have a perfect track record and have not failed Jesus. That's not where our courage comes from. It comes absolutely from the fact that not only did he conquer the world, but he shares that victory with us. Because of him, we can face the difficult life we have ahead of us with courage. When the disciples speak with a certainty that they will deny by their actions within hours... Jesus shows that he knows of their upcoming failure. 
and he assures them of their ultimate victory in him in spite of it. How have you found courage in Jesus to face the world despite your failures? Let's face it. Let's just be honest. Following Jesus is not easy. He says things to us that are hard to understand. And even years into following him, we continue to have to reevaluate our understanding of even the simplest things he's said to us. We often face moments that are profoundly challenging. Just like the disciples did when Jesus died. There are moments when God seems to fail us. When our faith in him, him seems to have been exposed as a sham. But Jesus shows up and secures for us a relationship with God the Father. The almighty God of the universe. Because of Jesus we can ask and God our Father will respond. We love him. He loves us. So maybe it doesn't matter that we don't get it right all the time. Maybe it doesn't matter that we mess up and think we know things and then realize we were wrong. Here's why. This is why we have peace through it all. Jesus knows all about it. He has accounted for our weaknesses and failures. So take courage. Jesus has conquered the world itself. What is there to be worried about? We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want to give you an opportunity to do whatever you feel God is laying on your heart in response to his word today. If you don't know Jesus, let me ask you to start there. Come before him and put your faith, your trust in him and let him open up for you this relationship with God the Father. Surrender your heart and life to him and say, I want you to take my life and lead me into eternity. I want you to be God in my heart and life. If that's you this morning, then come forward. We'll have people here on either side. Uh, take, come to either side and share that with the people up front. Let them encourage you and pray with you and maybe even help you, uh, guide you in a prayer uh, yourself. Maybe you already know Jesus and you've been reminded today of something where you have been lacking in your walk with him. A lack of understanding or a lack of putting your faith in the wrong thing. Putting the, your faith in yourself instead of him. Allowing uh, the tribulations of this life uh, to uh, overshadow the joy that you have in him. And you want to come and tell him uh, that you want to make things right. If that's you this morning, come and share that with the people who will be here up front. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. They'll be here to do that for you as well. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and kneel and pray uh, on your own. The altar is open for that as well. Whatever it is God is laying on your heart this morning, take advantage of this time to do that. Let me ask you all to stand while we sing this song. The song is your time for response.